Uh, Let's pray, and we'll get into Mark chapter 8. Father, again, as we pray and to settle our hearts before you this morning, there are a thousand things we have brought in thinking about our worries, cares, and affairs of this world. I pray, Lord, that for just this moment, you would distract us by your word. Distract us from the, uh, the things, that are, the earthly focus, Lord, the earthly cares and, and affairs, and help us get our mind refocused on things above. Remind us of who you are. Remind us of your goodness, your greatness, your power, your provision, all the things we need to hear, Lord. You know where our hearts are, and, and we ask that you to speak to us, just as we, we sang, Lord. I pray that, that those words would not just be empty words, but we as a group, corporately, would sit here in your presence, once again, reiterating and re-offering, Lord, here is my heart. Speak what is true. And Lord, we know you can't speak anything but what is true. So as we get into your word, Lord, any walls that are up uh, between you and the people that have come, Lord, between you and us, any walls, any stiff arms that keep you at the distance, Lord, I pray those would dissolve walls would break down, and that people would let you in, that we would say, here's our heart, Lord. Speak what is true. Help us to hear, appreciate, and understand your word this morning. It's in Jesus' name we pray. And all God's expectant people said, amen. Amen. That didn't didn't sound like expectant people. Chapter 8 of the Gospel of Mark, uh, we've been making our way from chapter 1 all the way through. Chapter 8 brings us, if I'm correct, halfway through the Gospel of Mark. It is It is a fast-paced gospel, but it's taking us a lot longer to go through it than I expected to. Mark, uh, although it's only 16 chapters, he packs in the information. And we've uh, come to chapter 8, begins with, In those days, the multitude being very great and having nothing to eat, Jesus called his disciples to him and said to them, I have compassion on the multitude because they have now continued with me Three days and have nothing to eat. And if I send them away hungry to their own houses, they will faint on the way, for some of them have come from afar. Then his disciples answered him, How can one satisfy these people with bread here in the wilderness? And he asked them, How many loaves do you have? And they said, Seven. So he commanded the multitude to sit down on the ground, and he took the seven loaves and gave thanks, broke them, and gave them to his disciples to set before them, and they set them before the multitude. They also had a few small fish, and having blessed them, he said, uh, he, set, he said to set them also before them. Verse 8, So they ate and were filled, and they took up seven large baskets of leftover fragments. Now those who had eaten were about 4,000. And he sent them away, immediately got into the boat with his disciples, and came to the region of Dalmanutha. Now, you might be thinking, well, that's a... Uh, we've, we've, I I have this feeling of deja vu. We've studied this before. Now, I'm not a great basketball player, but uh, every so often I'm on a court, uh, I grab that basketball, and I go and I I kneel down at the halfway line at at midcourt, and I face backwards, you know, and and then I take that ball and I give it a throw to the net just to, you know, just to to give something a shot, just to try it out, just to have fun. And every so often uh, it goes in. Just by luck, you know. So there I am. If, I'm, if I take that ball and I say, hey, kids, watch this. And I kneel down and, and I, 
and I toss it up and swish, it goes right in. They would say, Steve, uh, no, that was just luck. And if I said, okay, and it was, trust me, it was. Uh, but if I took it again and, and did it again, then maybe they'd begin to think maybe it wasn't luck. So we come now to another feeding of, of the multitudes, and the disciples are still in the Jesus school of discipleship, and, and maybe uh, still trying to comprehend what their understanding about Christ and, and who he is and, and what he can do. And, and so in some ways, this repeat of, a, uh, of the miracle of multiply, multiplying bread, he's going to show them, on, on one hand, it's not a fluke. It's not just that I tossed it up there and got lucky one time. He's going to show them, hey, this is my regular ability. And we need to hear that message because sometimes God does something in our life and we think, well, that was just a fluke. And God continues to re- reveal himself. Hey, this wasn't a fluke. He's done this twice. Some people say, well, this is just the same miracle repeated. It was in a different region altogether. And we'll see as we go through, it's a different situation. He does the same thing, not exactly in the same way, but he does it a second time. And he feeds the multitudes. The heart of it, the root of it, verse 1 tells us, he saw the, the, the multitudes that they didn't have anything to eat. And he said, now this time, he begins the conversation. He talks to the disciples again, teaching something very valuable about himself. If we are going to be Jesus' disciples, and we want to be, then we have to learn who he is and how he operates so we can do things like he does them. And the first thing we learned, we talked about it last week, is he is compassionate. Now, we, we easily can be critical or condemning, judgmental. Compassion doesn't seem to come so easily for us, does it? I don't know why that is, but it's harder for us to to see someone in their difficult state and to have compassion. Usually we want to tell them, well, you ought to fix it yourself or you should be doing this. We want to fix them instead of having compassion on them. And, And there's a place for discipleship. Trust me, I know that. But in this case, Jesus said, I have compassion on the multitude because they've been with me for three days and have nothing to eat. They have chosen, rather than to go home and get food, they have chosen to stick it out with Jesus. They didn't want to miss a word. Now, I like this multitude. They wanted to hear what this man had to say. For three days, they listened to his preaching. So, uh, in that same fashion, I hope you guys brought lunch. Because we're going to stay three days, I'm going to preach today. Just so you get the sense of what it was. No, I'm not going to preach for three days. And verse 3 says, Jesus' heart is if, if I send them away hungry to their own houses, they'll faint on the way, for some of them have come from afar. I like the way Matthew records this. Jesus said, I do not want to send them away hungry. In a physical sense, compassion on people, hey, they're hungry, I want to feed them. What about from a spiritual sense? I understand as a pastor that you've come here hungry, and I appreciate that about Calvary Chapel. And I think maybe that's why you come. I have that same desire that I think is in Jesus. I don't want to send people away hungry. Now, there's, uh, I I think it was Amos that talked about the fact that there is, in his day there was, and I think in our day it's the same, a great hunger. There is a great hunger, not for bread, but for the Word of God. And I think that those that are hungering for it are having a hard time finding it. Now, again, don't get me wrong. There are wonderful churches across the country, across the world, preaching God's Word. 
regularly, in season, out of season, teaching the Bible. Uh, but I think that uh, many of you would agree, and I've heard stories, I'm not making this up, you tell me that, hey, we've been places where the pastor opens the Bible, reads a verse, puts the Bible down, and tells 30 minutes of stories about fishing and football. That's not food. That's junk. The word, all the way through the Bible, you see the Word of God is food. Jesus quotes it. Moses writes it, Deuteronomy chapter 8, when God had led the people of Israel in the wilderness for 40 years. He reminds them that he allowed them to hunger. He, he, he will let people hunger. He will let you go through difficult things so that then he can show you that you can't be self-reliant, that you don't have all the resources necessary, but he does. God wants you to know that he is God and that you're not. And so he'll let you hunger so that you realize there's nothing I can do about it. And then he'll feed you. In the Old Testament, it was the manna. He'll feed you with food. He'll provide for you from a place you would have never thought to look. Anybody ever had that happen? I mean, that happens all the time where you, you come up with, okay, God, you either got to do A or B. And God says, well, I got C waiting over here, and you didn't even think of it yet. But I'm going to do it. And so he lets them hunger, and he says, I let you hunger so that I could feed you with food you didn't know, so that you would learn that man does not live by bread alone, but by every, listen, every word that comes from the mouth of God. The Bible says clearly all Scripture is God-inspired and profitable. So if we're talking about living by every word and all Scripture is God-inspired, that's why we make it our aim to go through the entire Bible. Some have said it takes a whole Bible to make a whole Christian. And I think that maybe what draws you here is the fact that we don't spend our year talking about marriage and stewardship and tithing and the topics. We go through the Word of God. Not all of it is easy to preach. I understand. There's some passages I go, I come to, oh, this is going to be tough. This is, this is a hard word. This is meat and not milk. But I know it's those things that we don't always like to eat that nourish us the best. If, if we had our own way, we'd go to the, uh, to the cotton candy and the junk food. And you'd eat it, but would it really care for your life? Would it really, would it really nourish you? No, it wouldn't. So that's why I love the Word of God, and I love Jesus' heart. I don't want to send them away hungry. We're not going to get here and, and be political-minded. We're not going to just get here and go, well, let's, let's have a light show and entertainment, because then you leave here. Someone just before the service today was telling me, Steve, I went to this church this last week, and I just left there feeling so empty, because the Word of God was absent and so my heart, not to leave you feeling hungry. Now, again, one thing I will mention is some people come to church uh, and, and the word is like mouthwash. You're just going to gargle it around in your mouth and, well, I'll think about what he's saying. I'll, I'll consider the things he's talking about. But then when you get out of the, you get out of the building, and pff, you spit it out. And it sort of flavored you a little bit, but it's not really nourished you. For the word of God, for these people to actually be nourished, Jesus says, hey, I don't want to leave them hungry. He's going to provide a feast of bread and fish for them again. Different group of people. He's going to provide a feast for them, but they're going to have to, they're not just going to be able to take the bread and put it in their mouth and kind of suck on it for a minute and then spit it out. 
That won't nourish them, will it? For food to nourish you. See, you come here, I can take the word and I can feed it to you and you can put it in your mouth, but I can't make you swallow it. Only faith can make you swallow it. So I just, I love that heart of Christ. Just the compassion, because that's what Jesus said the first time when he saw the, sh- the people that they were like sheep without a shepherd. He sat down and he taught them. And good teaching is food for the sheep. So then the disciples said, uh, this is an amazing statement. If you've been following with us and you've been through just uh, two chapters ago, the feeding of the 5,000 where they watched and helped Jesus feed 5,000 men, another 10,000 women and children, possibly 15,000 people. They were part of it. Their hands smelled like bread. Their hands smelled like fish from handing it out, you know, and from being part of that. And now they're in the same situation again. Hungry people and, and Jesus says, well, I want to feed them because they came came from far away. I don't want them to to faint on the way home. And the disciples said, well, how can one satisfy these people with bread here in the wilderness? And it's like, "Uh, really? Did you just, I mean, hello, guys. Don't you remember what I did just a little while ago? And and we, we might go, how could they possibly ask that question? But we do the same thing, don't we? I mean, we are... And this is Jesus' A-team. These are the guys that are going to change the world. They're going to turn the world upside down. And, and they're, st- you know, they're not chugging on all cylinders just yet. How, can, how is this possible? And I think a couple things when I, when I read this. Number one, of course, I think they're just like, I mean, we're no different. I mean, we see God do something. Uh, we see a miracle happen. And, and for that moment, we're, just, we're in the midst of it. And we're enjoying it. But then some time passes, and in between these two feedings, time has passed. And I'll show you why in a few minutes. But some time has passed. We don't know how long. Has it been six months? And you know how it is where something that ha- we, we forget. We, we can so easily forget what God did six months ago, a year ago, five years ago. And somehow we think that, you know, we, we forget that it happened. And we forget how, how awesome God is. And, and that's one thing that can happen. Or... You know, sometimes we can, we can uh, think that, well, maybe God did it then, but he's not going to do it again. Maybe it was a fluke. Maybe it was an accident. Maybe it was luck, coincidence. And so you go through a crisis and you say, well, how is God going to do this? Well, same way I did it last time. God, how can, we, how can we feed all these people here in the wilderness? I mean, food lions are far away. We don't have enough resources. Look, if God says we're going to feed people, he'll make sure they get fed. God has resources. Listen, if you're one that doesn't turn to prayer, doesn't turn to God in prayer, if you're one that that tries to be self-reliant, I want to tell you from personal experience, I think many could join me in that, God has resources you do not know of. And we tend to come to our situation. Here's how we think. You see, some have said in the beginning, God created man in his image, and then man returned the favor. We create a God in our image. So if we come to a situation, what they're saying is, God, we don't see how we could provide for all these people. Therefore, if it's tough for us, it must be hard for you too. And you've just reduced God to human level. Don't do that. That will make you live a very subpar Christian life if God can only do what you can do. Because you ain't God. I'm continually in touch with how powerless, the, the more I recognize my own powerless, the more prayerful I become. 
I want to tap in to the power that God has and to the resources he has. And it's, it's, I feel it, it grows in my life. It grows in my life from year after year as I see God at work. Like, I don't know. I don't know how we're going to do this, but let's pray. I don't have to know how. How are we going to do it? Here, bread, bread, all same way we did last time. He says to them, how many loaves do you have? Now, they don't have to shake down a, a little kid for his lunch this time. Evidently, they have some food. They have some bread with them. And they said seven. Last time, it was five loaves and two fish. So he commanded the multitude to sit down on the ground. Now, last time, they, he commanded them to sit down where? On the grass. So it's quite possible that this is an indication that time has passed it was a season where there was grass on the ground, maybe springtime before, and now maybe six months has passed. It's a season uh, where the, the grass has dried up, and, and now they're sitting on the ground instead of on the grass. So he took the seven loaves and gave thanks, and you should every time you eat. Broke them and gave them to his disciples to set before them, the multitude. And they set them before the multitude. They also had a few small fish, and having blessed them, he said to set them also before them. So they ate and were filled, just as they were before. They were uh, filled to capacity, glutted. And they took up seven large baskets of leftover fragments. I think last time it was 12 baskets. And the word for basket last time was a different word for basket than here. Last time it was like we had 12 lunch bags full. That would be the more literal translation. A small basket, more like a, a lunch size basket. This one is a basket the size of a laundry basket. This is a basket big enough for a human to sit in. This is the basket that Paul gets let down over the wall in, in the book of Acts. They lower him down. They, Paul sits in a basket. They lower him down over the wall. This is a huge basket. And now they have seven baskets full of leftover fragments. So again, no one leaves hungry. No one says, you know, I came to God and, you know, I just... I, he just didn't do it for me. I just didn't, he just didn't fill me. Then, then I don't know what God you came to, but our God is a God who fills, fills us with all, with all the fullness of God. Now those who had eaten were about 4,000, and he sent them away immediately, got into the boat with his disciples, and came to the region of Dalmanutha. So again, the feeding of the, of the, the 4,000 uh, plus women and children, so it's probably much more than that. Uh, that scene ends, and they head off back across the Sea of Galilee. Nobody really knows where Dalmanutha is. It's not mentioned anywhere else. Matthew writes in his account of this that they went off to Magdala, so it could have been that uh, Dalmanutha and Magdala were close to one another, or this was another name for that same place. But they head back to the west coast of the Sea of Galilee. So they get there, and now they're back in in. Uh, the country of the Pharisees. And the Pharisees came out and began to dispute with him, seeking from him a sign from heaven, testing him. But he sighed deeply in his spirit and said, why does this generation seek a sign? Assuredly, I say to you, no sign shall be given to this generation. And he makes a vow. It's almost, it's a language that is very uh, vow-like. He says, May it never be. I'm not, I'm, I vow not to, make, not to give any sign to this generation. Now, that's, it seems like, you know, we always talk about God who meets us where we are. We, we think about Thomas. He said, unless I put my hands in, in, in his side and then my fingers in his wounds, uh, I won't believe. So it's kind of odd that we see here, you know, they're coming seeking a sign and Jesus says, nah, not giving you a sign. 
But I think a few things we have to be reminded. We know who these Pharisees are. Uh, They've seen Jesus do things. Now, the miracles, uh, a different word is used here than the miracles or the works that he's done. He's cast out a demon, and they said he was satanic. He's raised people from the dead. He's healed on the Sabbath, and they gave him a hard time because he broke their tradition. So recognize that these guys are coming to dispute with him. They're coming to argue with him. Have you ever met anybody like that? I meet people like that all the time. Matter of fact, you've introduced me to some. Well, we can't get through them. Let's take them to Steve. Thanks a lot. Bring them on. Bring them on. But, but realize that if someone comes that way, they're not going to be reached. They're not going to be reached. Because you're not going to reason them into the kingdom. You're not going to dispute them into the kingdom unless they are coming earnestly, honestly, desiring and hungering to know. You know, Jesus even said, don't cast your pearls before swine. Don't give all, don't spend your time and your energy and and give out of the depths of your heart for God to someone who's just going to trample over you and what you give them. Don't waste your time. Now, you got to be discerning about that right? Some people are just angry. I, someone introduced me to somebody a number of years ago. They said, ah, oh, this guy that I work with, you got to meet him. He really hates God. Like, oh, so I got to meet him, right? He hates God, so he, I need to get in touch with this guy. So we talked, though, and as I talked, as I listened to him, it became really clear. I said, okay, who in your family was a pastor, your father or your grandfather? He said, how did you know? My grandfather. I just knew. I just knew. So you know, sometimes you can get underneath what's the core of the issue. But these Pharisees, they were so linked into their hypocrisy and their power and their traditions. All they wanted to do was discredit Jesus in front of the crowds. All they wanted to do was get rid of him. And so they come seeking a sign from heaven. In other words, they wanted something else. They knew what he'd done, but that wasn't good enough. And that's how people are that seek after signs. Uh, that's, even if God did it, it wouldn't be good enough. They would explain it away or, you know, write it off somehow. It was coincidence. It wasn't real, you know, because it's a matter of the heart, isn't it? It's a matter. If someone comes saying, I believe, help my unbelief, God doesn't, God responds one way to faith. You come to him in faith and he will meet you there. And that's how the woman with the issue of blood comes. That's how the leper comes. That's how they come through the gospel. When people come to him, in faith, asking for mercy and help. He meets their need. These guys are coming in unbelief and hardness. And so he says, you know what? I'm not playing games. I'm not here to just do tricks. Now, some people have a God that they just love to see him do tricks. And I'm not condemning. I'm just going to present this to you. And I've, I've seen people chasing after signs. Have you seen people like, that chase after signs? That's not a sign of faith. That's a sign of lack of faith. Doesn't, the Bible doesn't say faith comes by signs. The Bible says faith comes by hearing. And hearing the Word of God. But there are those that will go to the Holy Spirit meetings and chase after the signs and, and say, well, you know, I was at this prayer meeting and you'll never believe it. You know, we saw orbs of light. Okay, that's fine. Maybe you did. And we saw people covered with gold dust. Like, collect it up, put it in the offering box. We can use that. But I'm just telling you from my, I mean, I read the Bible, 
and I look at things and I say, I don't see Jesus pulling rabbits out of his hat just for the sake of proving who he is. Do you? I mean, if he did, this would be the time to do it. All right, let me, I mean, if that was me, I'd I'd roll up my sleeves. All right, it's time for fire from heaven and you're the target. You want to see a sign from heaven? I'll give you a sign from heaven. Jesus knows signs don't produce faith. If signs produce faith, then the whole nation of Israel that came out of Egypt would have been saved. But they all perished except for Joshua and Caleb. They all perished in the wilderness. Why? Unbelief. Maybe you remember the story of the rich man and Lazarus. In the the Gospel of Luke, there's a rich man and there's this guy named Lazarus. And Lazarus is a poor beggar and he is at the the doorway of, of this rich man's house and the rich man just ignored him all his life. Never helped him. The dogs were at least licking the poor man's wounds. He had boils on him. He was just in a terrible, terrible state of poverty and sickness. And the dogs were being more compassionate to this man than the rich man was. And guess what? As, as happens, they both died. The rich man dies and the poor man dies. They both alike die. And on the other side, the rich man was in torment. He had in this world all the good things. He didn't share any of them. And now he is, the the tables have been turned. He's in torment. The poor man who in this life had nothing except pain and suffering. In the next life, he was being comforted in Abraham's bosom, in a place of comfort. And so the rich man says, hey, can you send Lazarus over here to just comfort me? I'm in in pain over here. I'm, I'm hot and the fire is hurting me. So can he just come over and touch my tongue with some water? And, and he's told, you can't cross over. There's a, there's a divide. There's a chasm between you. You can't cross over. He can't come to you. You can't go to him. And so he says, you know what? I've got five brothers, and they're all still alive, and they need to know what I'm going through here on the other side of death, on the life after death. They need to know. Because if they know, my hope is that they'll change the way they live. Those of us that believe in eternal life, eternal life is just not one of those concepts that we we like to get doctrinal about, that we just like to fantasize about or talk about a Bible study. Belief in life after death changes the way we live now. It changes the way we live now. If you really believe that we live after we die, if the things we do in life matter for eternity, that changes the way you live now. And, and that was what la- the uh, rich man's hope was. Send Lazarus back to tell my brothers. He's got to warn them. All of a sudden, the rich guy wants to be an evangelist. And he says, uh, well, that's not possible. And even if it was possible, though one would rise from the dead, they would not believe. See, even a sign like resurrection won't make people believe. And, and he goes on to say, they have Moses and the prophets. Let them believe them. Look, you have the word of God. I have the word of God. That's all you need is the word of God. Now, the sign Matthew records, the one sign that will be given, goes on to say not just that no sign will be given, but no sign except the sign of Jonah, who for three days was in the belly of a fish, and then vomited on the shores of Nineveh and he preaches repentance and they get saved. 
They, get, they repent. And so this is the sign. The sign that Jesus will give them is he's going to be buried. He's going to be crucified, buried, and he's going to rise again from the dead. That's the sign that they'll have. So he leaves them, verse 13 says, he left them and getting into the boat again, departed to the other side. Now the disciples had forgotten to take bread. And they did not have more than one loaf with them in the boat. Now they had all of these seven large baskets full and some, somehow they got caught up in the crowd. They got distracted. They, they meet with the Pharisees and they left the basket behind. And so they only have one loaf of bread. And then he charged them, Jesus, verse 15, says he charged them, take heed, beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and the leaven of Herod. And they reasoned or literally dialogued among themselves saying, it's because we don't have bread. And, and literally it would be saying, uh, they would be say, arguing about whose fault it was. Why didn't we bring, where's the bread? Whose fault is it? Who left the bread behind? They think Jesus is upset with them because they forgot to bring enough food for everybody. And Jesus is like, oh, what am I going to do with these guys? He takes the time for this teaching moment. He says to them, hey guys, beware, be careful, pay attention, take heed of what the leaven. Now you all know what leaven is. We talk about this a lot in the Bible. Leaven is, is the yeast, it's the agent that causes bread to rise. So it, it has the connotation in the Bible of something that corrupts, something that spreads throughout and, and in, infiltrates. And it's typically used of in a negative sense in the Bible. So maybe some of you have grandparents that, that your grandmother always made bread and she got the starter for her bread, like a sourdough bread. She got the starter from her mother who got it from her mother. I met a guy one time that had starter. He was proud of this. He baked bread. He was, a, he was a guy that was really into baking bread and he had starter that went back to like the 1700s. That's old starter. Now how does that, some of you are going, oh, was it moldy? You know, here's, so you have this starter and it's leavened. It's got the yeast in it. And then you make your dough for your loaf of bread and you fold into it this piece of starter and it's only a little piece compared to the rest of the big dough there, the big lump of dough, but it begins to, it, the leaven spreads out and begins to infiltrate the whole lump and it, and it rises. Then you take a little piece of that and you put it aside in the fridge. And so each time you make a new loaf, you take some of the, the bread and you put it aside. You take some of the, the dough, you put it aside and that's what you use to start the next. So it's this idea of, of generational carrying th this, the leaven is carried on from one generation to the next. And so when he says, beware of the leaven of the Pharisees, he ain't talking about bread or dough. He's speaking metaphorically. He's speaking symbolically. What's he talking about? What is the leaven of the Pharisees and the leaven of Herod? Matthew includes Jesus uh, saying the Sadducees as well, these various religious parties. It could be a number of things. I think in the direct context, I think it's this desire to seek for signs. You know how people influence us? You know how in easily influenced we are by people and the way that they live and the way that they act and the things they believe? Matthew actually tells us that the leaven is the doctrine, the teaching of the Pharisees and the Sadducees. You have to be so well educated. That's why we encourage you, read your Bible cover to cover. Then no one can pull the wool over your eyes. Then no one can mislead you as long as you're willing to, to come to God's Word and know what it says. Because you'll meet all kinds of people that tell you all kinds of things about God. And there's all kinds of things that are just flat out wrong. 
and you'll never know it. So many people are ignorant of what God's Word says. And then you can be easily infiltrated or influenced by false doctrine, by, false, by teaching that just plain isn't true. Now, if the pseudo-Christian cults were so obvious, they wouldn't have thousands and millions of followers. They get you alone at work. They pull you aside uh, somewhere, and they begin to share with you their doctrine. And it begins to infiltrate, and you go, oh, maybe they're right. And it's done that. It's the, false teaching has infiltrated so many people's lives. And so he says to his disciples, look, beware of the leaven or the false teaching, the doctrine, the way that they teach, the things that they do, the way that they live. It could be this, this unbelief that seeks after signs. It could be in another place it's called hypocrisy. Beware of the teaching that religion is just outward. That, that, all, that all, your whole relationship with God is just about what you do outwardly and nothing on the inside. That was their, that was their teaching. It was hypocrisy. That's what they did. Uh, the Sadducees didn't believe in miracles. They just believed in what, what you could touch and experiment on and, and, and feel. Beware of that too. Beware of materialists. People that say, well, there's no such thing as angels. There's no such things as spirits. There's no such things as demons. There's no such things as resurrection or life after death. That would be the Sadducees' leaven. And you can easily be infected and affected by that. So Jesus, uh, being aware that they're now dialoguing among themselves, they just should have said, Jesus, what does that mean? And sometimes it's so easy, isn't it, guys? It's just, Jesus, what do you mean by that? But no, they're, they're getting together in their committee meeting to decide what he meant. Be careful of truth that comes out of a committee. I'm serious. This is, the, this is a buzzword today. Let's, let, we just have to open a dialogue. No, we just have to open the Bible. Truth doesn't necessarily come out of a dialogue. The, the majority is not always right. Usually, they're never right. So, just saying. Verse 17, But Jesus, being aware of it, said to them, Why do you reason because you have no bread? Guys, think about it. Do you not yet perceive nor understand? Is your heart still hardened? Having eyes do you not see? Having ears do you not hear? And do you not remember? I mean, he's almost, I would love to hear his voice in this. It would probably be the same voice that he would use with some of those that are here today. You've seen, listen, you've come in, maybe someone invited you or, or somebody you know, dragged you here and begged you to come because they know you need Jesus in your life. They know you need a change. They know you need help. And they know you can't help yourself. And so they've brought you to church. But there's still that little eh in your heart like, I don't need, I can fix it myself. I don't need God. I don't even know if I believe in God. And to say I don't believe in God is to write off a whole lot of proof that you're not willing to accept. Things you've seen, it, it, you just look around. The, the existence of biology itself leads you to the existence of God. He's revealed himself in nature. He's revealed himself in so many ways in a general sense. And then he's revealed himself in specific ways to people that you're friends with, to people that you know, that you've seen a change in their life. And yet the wall is still up. And today Jesus would say to you, having eyes, I mean, you've seen it, but you refuse to see it. I've sat with people in counseling. I've talked to those people that you've brought to me. I'm bringing them back to you, by the way. And you, and you just, 
you just heart, your heart breaks because it's so clear to us who have, who have believed. It's so obvious. And yet, having, how can you not, how can you miss this? And having ears do you not hear and do you not remember. And for them, he's speaking of this, what he did last time and what he's doing this time. When I broke the five loaves for the 5,000, how many baskets full of fragments did you take up? I wonder if they were hesitant to answer. Uh, Twelve? <laughs> Right. Also, when I broke the seven for the 4,000, how many large baskets full of fragments did you take up? And they said, seven. And he said to them, how is it you don't understand? It's so clear and so obvious, but you keep having to learn the same lessons over and over again. I can create food from nothing. I can cre- I'm a creative God. I can do it once. I can do it twice. I can do it as many times as I want to. There they were in the boat. They've got one loaf. Do you know what Jesus can do with one loaf? Does he need, it's like, well, I really need five to get a good start at this, you know. I can't really work with three. I need, like, one is just not enough. I need five. No. He can create out of nothing. Why do we struggle with resurrection so much? If in the beginning, God takes the, the dust of the earth and forms it together and breathes, breathes original life into Adam's nostrils and he creates, we can believe that, that God created mankind and breathed life into his nostrils, but resurrection, I got a hard time with that. At least with resurrection, he's got starting materials. We serve an awesome God who is compassionate and powerful And you may be saying, well, I asked God, I prayed about this, and God didn't do it. You just wait. You keep praying. He just may not have done it yet. Or maybe he's teaching you. Maybe he's teaching you something. So I'm going to invite the the praise team to come back up. And uh, as is always the case, today could be the day of salvation. Every day, any day is a good day to get saved, isn't it? You remember the day you were saved? That's a good day. And so today, maybe God has uh, snuck up on you here. You've been challenged about uh, some hardness of your heart. I'm going to be down here uh, by the steps. The prayer room will be open. If you're, if you're too shy to come forward while we sing the last song, uh, and you still you want to talk or pray about being saved, about being born again, about having a fresh start, then come after the song ends. We'll be waiting for you up here. Please don't let anything get in your way. Satan does not want you to start a new life. He is a destroyer and a murderer, and he wants to see you live in a life of misery separated from God now and for all eternity. But you don't have to listen to him. Today you can make a choice to be transferred from the kingdom of darkness to the kingdom of light, to move from death to life, to move from lies to truth. And it's just a matter of you taking a few steps, not just down the aisleway here, but letting that wall down and letting God in. Amen? I'd love to pray with you about that if that's your desire.